This too is God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matthan, and Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we confess that the readings this morning are not normal. The one rather shocking, the other rather dull with lists of names, and yet both are in the Word that You have given to us, and we trust You have given them to us for our welfare. And so we ask for Your help now to understand what difference these words should play in our lives. We pray that you would open our eyes through these words that we might behold Christ more clearly, that we might hear Him speaking to us, and that you would send your Spirit to apply these words to our hearts, that we would be changed. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. We come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Not just anyone with a love of American history can belong to the Mayflower Society or the Daughters of the American Revolution. To belong to either of these organizations, you must have a clearly identifiable ancestor who either arrived in America on the first voyage of the Mayflower or else who fought on the patriot side in the American Revolution. We find meaning 
in looking into our genealogy, being able to identify important people in the past, people of honor or distinction, someone that we can connect our lives to. We're generally not looking for crooks or scoundrels, though sometimes, undoubtedly, they are there. We're looking for people of significance and importance that we can have a sense of being part of something good and something great. This is true today. It was true long ago. It was true in the days of the Bible. Now, Matthew begins his gospel quite deliberately because he wants to make connections between Jesus and the people of God in the Old Testament. And not only the people of God, but the promises of God. So he connects Jesus to Abraham, the founding father of the people of God, to whom God promised in Genesis 12 three things, a land in which to live, a seed growing into a mighty nation to live in that land, and the privileges to be God's blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now, Matthew's the most Jewish of all four Gospels. He continually relates the life and ministry of Jesus to what was written in the Old Testament. We constantly read, as it was written in the Prophets, as it was written in Isaiah, as it was written in the Psalms, as it was written, as it was written. He also organizes Jesus' teachings in presenting them in the Gospel of Matthew into five distinct blocks of teaching material separated by narrative, suggesting the five books of the law of Moses where God constituted a people to Himself. And even the very first two words of His Gospel in Greek are Biblos Genesis. The book of Genesis. He's making it clear, taking us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible to tie Christ. And then beginning with the genealogies such as are found in the early chapters of Genesis. Now by beginning with the, uh, with the promise to Abraham, and concluding his gospel with the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, in effect, what Matthew is doing in this most Jewish of gospels is bookending the entire life and ministry of Jesus in the context of God's concerns, not just for the Jews, but for all the nations. And indeed, how interesting it is that it is in Matthew that we learn that the first postnatal visitors to the newborn Jesus are Gentile magi from far away. Yes, Jesus is not just for the Jews, but the Savior for the whole world. But Matthew also makes a strong connection, not just with Abraham, but between Jesus and David. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his sons would establish his throne forever and that he would rule the people of God in righteousness to eternity and bring about peace and goodness for all mankind. Indeed, in giving us the genealogy in verse 6, we notice that David alone is highlighted as David the king. 
There's a strong emphasis here on Jesus as the son of David. And many believe that the deliberate structure of this genealogy in terms of three groups of 14 is meant to point and support Jesus' connection to David because in Hebrew, the numerical sum of the letters of the name David comes to 14. But others, however, see the three 14s rather as six Seven, seven being the perfect number. And that when Jesus is born, He introduces the seventh seven, the perfect, the perfection of perfection of the kingdom of God. We know that this is a careful structuring of these genealogies because there are gaps. Between David and the going to the exile, there are four kings whose names have been omitted. He's very deliberately structuring this genealogy because it's not just a list of facts to establish the proof of where Jesus' genealogy goes. He has a theological message even in the genealogy. Right from the get-go, Matthew is proclaiming the gospel of Christ. This theological structure with the emphasis on David makes it likely that Matthew is giving to us the royal line of Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, who will reign forever for the people. Which means that Luke's account, rather, rather than being the, line, the bloodline of Mary, is more likely the bloodline of Joseph. So that the legal line and royal line come together and then they separate, but then they come together again. And given all this, knowing that Matthew has carefully set up this genealogy because he has a message even in the genealogy about Jesus, it is astounding Astounding that in this genealogy we encounter the names of five women. Because women were rarely ever included in a genealogy. Women weren't valued very highly. And so they would just be considered extraneous. But Matthew includes not just Mary, the mother of Jesus, but four other women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, and Mary. It's noteworthy for the women that aren't there. The, the wives of the great patriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, they're not included. But Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife are included. Matthew is deliberately making a connection between Jesus and each of these five women. And the question is, why? Why did Matthew choose these women to highlight in the genealogy of the Messiah? That's the very question we're going to explore in this Advent season. What do the women in Jesus' genealogy teach us about the Gospel? What is Matthew telling us about Jesus before we ever get to Jesus? Now, collectively, it should be noted that the first four 
are probably, not definitely, but probably all Gentiles. Tamar is probably a Canaanite, though it's not explicitly said. Rahab is a Canaanite. Ruth is a Moabitess. Uriah's wife, Uriah was a Hittite, so she may or may not have been a Hittite. But if in fact that's true, being Gentiles, that would reinforce the fact that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is in fact concerned for the world. Because into his own heritage, there were Gentile influences. Equally, if maybe not even more compelling is the fact of the irregular marriage slash giving birth circumstances surrounding each of these first four women. So, as it were, to prepare the way for the irregular virginal conception and birth of Jesus from Mary before she was actually the consummated wife Joseph. But beyond their collective ties to Jesus, we want to consider how their specific individual lives and circumstances inform our understanding of the good news of Jesus coming into the world. Because that's where Matthew's beginning with the good news of Jesus Christ coming into the world. Now, in light of the past few weeks' news focus on the widespread abuse of women in Hollywood, in government, and in the news media, Matthew's identification of Jesus with Tamar points us to good news for the sexually abused. This is not just a problem in the pagan power centers of our culture friends. As we heard from the Stantons during their report at our recent missions conference, they have a ministry to women who are being trafficked sexually throughout Europe, beginning in Bulgaria. And the truth is it's all around the globe. The sadder truth is it's not just in the pagan world, it's in the church. The Roman Catholic scandals, the Protestant scandals, the ministry leaders abusing women, preying on women. We don't talk much about it in the church, but Matthew now gives us the opportunity to talk about it. Because Tamar offers good news to the sexually abused. I deliberately read Genesis 38 first rather than Genesis or than Matthew 1 first. Because for the Jew in that world to have heard the to pick up Matthew and began reading or heard it read that suddenly the name of Tamar was introduced, the first shock would have been why is a woman in this Genealogy. The second shock was the full knowledge of all that they knew about Tamar would suddenly come flooding into their minds. Why would Jesus be connected to this woman? 
that Jesus would be linked to Tamar offers good news for the sexually abused. Jesus knows. Jesus cares. It's in His background of His royal lineage. It is part of His heritage. And that Jesus would be so directly linked to Tamar shows that it is not a matter of indifference to God. Even though I think that some of the sexually abused think that God doesn't care. He must not care. Or why would this be happening to me? Now, some may, on a quick reading of the text, point out that who's really at fault here? After all, it was Tamar who went and sat by the roadside and enticed Judah into a sexual relationship. But a more careful reading shows that Tamar was a sexual abuse victim whom God honored by giving her sons and a highlighted place in the royal line of the Messiah, in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Matthew could have simply written, Jacob, the father of Judah, Judah the father of Perez, Perez the father of Hezron, but he didn't. He specifically highlights the name Tamar. And the question is why? Well, first we have to give some background information to understand this. There was a custom in the ancient Near East culture that if a married firstborn son died without having a child, an heir, his brother would marry her and their firstborn son would be considered the firstborn son's son and then all the rest of the children would be considered the second brother's children. And in that culture, if there were no brothers, a a relative might fulfill that role, or even in the pagan culture, the father-in-law could fulfill that role of providing a son for his firstborn son. This custom was later enshrined in The Bible in Deuteronomy 25, where the father-in-law was removed as an option, leaving it only to brothers. And the law did two things. It preserved the, the line of a son of the people of God, that his line was not lost. But the other thing it did was it protected and gave security to the women. Because women were not highly regarded. They were mainly used and abused as baby factories. And if a woman was divorced or, or if she was widowed and she had no one to care for her, she very well might turn to prostitution just in order to survive. Because she would not be cared for by family members. Because she was, you know, an expired product, as it were. She was used up. She had been married, didn't have any kids, and died. Why would someone else want to marry her? Maybe she wouldn't have any kids for them. You will remember that Jesus Himself raised the only son of the widow of Nain after He died and restored in compassion this son to His mother because otherwise she would have no way to care for herself. Jesus had compassion 
on such a one. Now, as Genesis 38 opens, there's a hint that all is not well in Israel. Judah takes a Canaanite wife, contrary to Abraham making sure that Isaac got a wife from his own clan, and Isaac making sure that Jacob went all the way to his home village in order to get a wife from his clan. But Judah now goes and he takes a Canaanite wife. Her father's name was Shua, but her name is never given. It's never told us. Because apparently to Judah, she wasn't that important. Her father was more important than she was. Apparently, her only value to Judah was that he wanted her and that she gave him three sons who were born in quick order. Boom, boom, boom. But then in verse 6, we read that Judah obtains a wife for his firstborn son, Ur, who interestingly enough, if you reverse the, le- if you reverse the Hebrew letters of his name, it means wickedness. But his firstborn son, Ur, he gets a wife for her, and now the woman is named. Her name is Tamar. And it is after Tamar was given to Ur that we learn how wicked a person that Ur was. He becomes so wicked that he is the first individual that God himself destroys. Now, God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, a collective, but he had never, to this point in the Bible, specifically put to death an individual until now. And so that Tamar was the brunt of his wickedness, I think we can be fairly confident because his wickedness is not identified until after he has given her in marriage. So Tamar is already an abused woman, very likely. And so then Judah commands his second son, Onan, not to take Tamar as his wife, but simply to go into her and produce a child. That's sex abuse. She had the right to be married, but she wasn't given him in marriage. He just went in and basically raped his sister-in-law. Except he was greedy. He didn't want a son to his brother who would get part of the inheritance. So he used the only form of birth control he knew. He withdrew before he ejaculated. And so the semen spilled on the ground so she never got pregnant. And this wasn't just a one-time occurrence. We read, uh, we read in Genesis 38 that whenever he went into her, he would spill his semen on the ground. She was repeatedly abused and used for sex with no interest of unity, of love, even of children. She was an abused woman. And so God judges Onan and he puts him to death. And now Judah's scared. He only has one son left. What's going to happen to his line? And he doesn't want him to die. So he tells Tamar, you go home to your father. You're a widow. When my son Shelah is old enough, then we'll get you two together. Right. He's hoping that she will go away. Maybe she'll marry a Canaanite. Maybe she'll become a prostitute. 
Maybe she'll get tired of waiting. Then it's no longer his problem. Friends, that's abuse. She had rights. And he's abusing her. Even by the absence of intimacy. That's abuse. And we know it's abuse because as soon as he hears that she's pregnant, he immediately calls for her death. Let's get rid of this problem right away. He wants her to be burned. Let's make a a big show of this. We'll light up the skies. And everyone will know that it was all her fault that my sons died and didn't have kids. She didn't have kids for them. So what did Tamar do? She went to her father's house. She dutifully waited for Shalah. She didn't marry a Canaanite. She didn't become a prostitute. She kept on her widow's clothes. She waited and waited and waited and waited. And she was never summoned. And Shalah became old enough to marry. So finally, when Judah failed to keep His word. She did position herself when she heard he was going to shear the sheep. Now what was that all about? Well, in that culture, it was a common practice that the major agricultural cycles, whether it be sowing or reaping or sheep shearing, that there would be sort of uh, an acted prophecy where the workers would go into cult prostitutes to have sex in order to try and act out fruitfulness, so hoping that the sheep would be shorn and they'd get lots of wool, or that the the grain would go in the ground and flourish, or that they would have a, a, a good crop not destroyed by rain or fire. Now, all that Tamar did was take off her widow's clothes and put on a veil, which prostitutes would veil themselves, and she put herself by the road where she knew that Judah was going to pass. She did not proposition him. He propositioned her. She did not say, I need so much money. He he started the bargaining. All she asked for was his signet, his cord, and his staff. A signet was a cylinder roll that had carvings on it. It was sort of like your signature stamp. You would put it in ink and you would roll it across a document and that was your signature. And your staff was the symbol of your power. And so she, all she asked for was, okay, you send the goat you promised, but give me some security that you'll do that. Give me these things. And so he does. He cares for his heritage as much as Esau did when he sold it for pottage. For lentil soup. The problem was, is that when his friend went back to bring the sheep, he couldn't find the woman. What happened? We read that she took off the veil, she put on her widow's clothes, and she went back to her father and she waited. From his side, Judah was sexually abusing her in a horrible way. He was making her a prostitute. He assumed that she was a prostitute just for sitting there. Now, she, she knew what she was doing 
But he initiated it all. She meant nothing to him. He didn't know her name. He didn't even see her face. She was veiled. He didn't want to see her face. He just wanted to exert his power and his lust over this woman. And he did. From her side, what was she doing? She was seeking fulfillment of a promise. She had joined herself to the people of God. And she was being rejected. In a sense, this was an act of faith. She could have married a Canaanite. She could have gone into prostitution, but she didn't. She had waited and waited and waited, and Judah failed to keep his word. And we know that the blame is on him because Judah himself, when he's ready to kill her and he sees the evidence of his own abuse, he says, she is righteous, I am not. She did not continue in prostitution. But she was desperate. She was desperate. As many women who are sexually abused, or many young boys who are sexually abused, become very desperate. And sometimes they act out in ways that we would not approve of. And sadly, too often, we often look down on those people acting in those ways. We don't know the backstory. We make judgments. We write them off. Let them burn. Judah's attitude has changed. He comes under conviction. He repents. He takes the blame himself. He calls off the burning. He doesn't touch her again. But he never pronounces her name. Very See, even now, he recognizes his wrong, but he doesn't value her really as a person. And in an ironic act of divine mercy, God gives Tamar two sons, as it were, replacing the evil sons of Judah. And how... You see, when when Judah realized he had been deceived... The the conviction must have come right to his heart because what had he just done at the end of chapter 37? He had deceived his father Jacob by showing him the coat of many colors covered in goat blood and said, your son is dead. But now the deceiver has been deceived. And he takes that conviction to heart. But contrary to his... Brother Joseph, who's been sent off into slavery, who in chapter 39 is going to run from the seduction of Potiphar's wife, Judah himself initiates the seduction of his own daughter-in-law. Now, why have I gone into all this detail about what's going on here? Because when the first century person heard this genealogy and Tamar's name mentioned, as I said, not only was there the shock of the woman, but they knew what Tamar meant. They knew what had happened to Tamar. And how shocking that the Savior, the Messiah, would be deliberately linked to this woman who had experienced what she did. 
But Jesus was pleased to have his name identified with a woman who had been horribly sexually abused and treated just as a thing for the use of men. What does that mean for you and me here today? To any of you who might be sexually abused, then it's possible that even now someone here is. I hope not. I don't know of any. But it's possible. If you are, Jesus does care. You may be suffering and thinking, God doesn't care. Why is this happening to me? Jesus identified specifically with Tamar in the genealogy. He knows, He cares, He understands. He cares for you. There's a lot of different kinds of sexual abuse than what we saw described in the life of Tamar, but it is all evil. It can come from many sources, and sadly, often it can be a family member or a relative. And... If you are experiencing abuse right now, I plead with you, do not be quiet. Come to me or one of the elders. If you're uncomfortable, go to a woman in the church, an elder's wife, a deacon's wife. Tell them what's happening. We want to help you. Jesus identified with those who were suffering. You should not have to experience this anymore. So please, I plead with you, don't be silent. We will do whatever we can to get you help. But secondly, to the abuser. If there's an abuser here right now, God does not take your abuse lightly and He is fully aware of it. And you have only two options. Your first option is to repent right now. And as your first act of repentance, you need to stop. And your second act of repentance is you need to confess what you have done to someone else. Because you will not stop it on your own. And the reason you should repent is because God is gracious. And Judah, Judah who was a horrible abuser of his own daughter-in-law, He was shown grace. He's in the line of the Christ too. Not because of His worthiness, but because of God's grace and kindness to Him. However, His sons were shown no mercy. And the longer you continue in your abuse and solidify yourself in it, the less hope for mercy there is for you. So I plead with you too, stop it. Tell someone, get help too, before it is too late for you. To those of you who are not abusers, nor being abused, I plead with you, when you encounter someone of erratic behavior, someone who is prostituting themselves, don't always make the snap judgment that this person is evil and it's their own fault. Tamar did what she did out of desperation because she was being unfairly treated. And people who are being abused sometimes will abuse others or do wicked things because it's just the only way they can try and get some relief from the pressure of what's happening to them. The abused need our compassion and the compassion of Christ. 
And if we who name the name of Christ don't show them the compassion of Christ, how are they going to encounter His compassion? Now, there are wicked people who will do what they do because they want to do it. That's another story for another woman in the line of Christ. But if Jesus came for any reason, it was because that sinners cannot save themselves. He is the true King. And He came for people who are abused. He cares for people who are abused. And so we need to care. It's time for the church to stop hiding its problems. If grace is truly grace, it is grace that is received by sinners. And that's why Jesus came. Because even if your sin is not abuse, there's a whole host of sins that we all get entangled in. And it's only by the grace of the One who came, even Jesus the Christ, that we have hope. And that's what we celebrate. Jesus came into our world because He cared for sinners. He came to die for the wickedness of sinners so that they, in believing in Him, might live. Let us truly rejoice in the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is available to the most vile of sinners who trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how astounding it is that the first woman that is named in Your genealogy would be a woman of such distress. Lord, this problem is not something new to the United States in the 21st century. It is an ongoing problem since the beginning of time after the fall. When we reject you, we subject ourselves to anything and everything. We merit only your condemnation, and yet Jesus came in grace. And so we pray that you would fill our hearts with that grace today grace of forgiveness, grace of compassion, grace of concern, grace of hope in the midst of despair. Work Your grace where it is needed today, Lord, in each of our hearts that we might know Your favor and not Your condemnation. Thank You that You are a gracious God. Thank you that as messed up as Judah was, he was still in the line of Christ. Thank you for your love and mercy. Through Jesus, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our hymn of